Hello again, everybody. I know it's been a little while since our last show. We can blame Lena. I know. <laughs> if you all listened to our previous podcast, you know I had surgery. And then I had a couple complications. And then my son had wrestling tournament out of town. So, But we're back. Finally. Yay. Yay. We are going to be talking about English serial killer Harold Shipman. I'm excited. Yes. I think the last two you've done, I really don't know anything about. So yeah. I'm going to be learning along with everybody he, else. He was kind of a new one for me too. I hadn't, I never really knew much about him. How did you, how did you get turned on? How did you find him anyway? Oh, it's been a few weeks. I honestly can't remember mm, gotcha. how I came across him. He was a doctor. Really? Yeah. And, he, and this is in England, right? Yeah. Okay. He was probably one of the most prolific serial killers in recorded history. Ever in the Ever. world? <laughs> Ever. That's Scarlet if you hear that, guys. <laughs> yeah, he has known for about 218 murders. Confirmed. Positively ascribed to him, but they think the number could be higher. Some people think that maybe it was 250 or more. How do you find time? I mean, did he start when he was young or? He did all this while he was a doctor. He killed them. He killed his patients. What? Yeah. Were all of them patients? Yes. No. Mm-hmm. They were. Oh, man. Okay. Well, I can't wait to hear the details. These sound super fucked up. I know. And he was a middle child. Oh, middle child syndrome. <laughs> he was born into a working class family, uh, June 14th of 1946. Okay. His name was Harold Frederick Shipman. Nay, everybody just known him as Fred. He was the favorite child of his mother, Vera. Really? She was very domineering. Mm. Um, she instilled in him from an early age a sense of superiority. That he was better even he than his better, siblings? He was better than everybody. Mm. Um, and it, they say that it tainted most of his later relationships in life. I mean, of course. It, it always makes me think when I was actually... Uh, compiling this information, it made me think of that episode, if everybody's ever seen it, the episode of Sex in the City where they go to the baby shower in Connecticut. I know I've watched it because I've watched all of them, but I can't recall yeah. it. So they're at this baby shower, this woman that they used to hang out with that they can't stand, and uh -huh. some random mother walks up to, I think it was Miranda and Carrie, and she said, her whatever her son's name um, he is a god, and I tell him so every day. Oh, my Lord. And she walked away, and Miranda says to Carrie, what are the odds in about 30 years? No woman is ever going to be able to satisfy him. Right? <laughs> kind of setting him up for failure, huh? Exactly. Or to be a serial killer. Uh -uh. Apparently, 
given him that superiority complex that he was an isolated adolescent. He didn't have very many friends growing up. Hmm. Obviously. Well, that makes sense. All thought he was an asshole. Right. And uh, a neighbor of the family was quoted as saying that, you know, Vera was friendly enough, but she really did see her family as superior to everybody else. So it wasn't just him, the whole family. The whole family. But she saw him as being the best, the best. out of all of them. Yeah. He said not only that, but you could also tell that Harold, okay, Freddie, mm-hmm. was her favorite. The one she saw as the most promising of her three children. Really? Mm-hmm. Usually, because my mom's a middle child, and she says that middle children don't really get any attention. Like, they're the ones that get blamed for forgotten everything and, and forgotten. Yeah. So, it's odd that him being the middle child was the favorite. Yeah. That is some, That is different. Mm-hmm. She, Vera, his mom would always, she would decide who he was allowed to play with and when he could play with them. She wanted to distinguish him from the other boys. He was the one who always wore a tie when the others were allowed to, you know, dress more casually. His sister, Pauline, she was seven years older than him. His brother, Clive, was four years younger, but to his mother... He, Harold was the one that she had the most hope for. Hmm. I wonder why. I don't know. That's odd. What it was about. Right. Like you said, middle children don't usually. I know. Aren't usually treated that like mm-hmm. that with their parents. Growing up as a student, Harold was a fairly bright child early on in his school years. Um, but once he got into the higher levels mm-hmm. of education, um, he was what they said mediocre. Really? Yeah, he was a mediocre student. Nonetheless, he was determined to succeed and, you know, made it through school. He apparently had every opportunity to be part of groups, you know, in his secondary education. He was an accomplished athlete. Um, He played football and he ran track. Really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But they said that, you know, his belief in his superiority kept him from forming any type of meaningful friendships. Or... Right, he couldn't bond with anybody because he thought they were all subpar, I guess. Yeah. Weren't they... worth his time. Exactly. His mother, when he was 17, she was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Oh. And a lot has been said of how he dealt with it mm-hmm. in her final months. Um, he, he was like a, a caretaker throughout, you know, her final Where days. was his dad in all this? Was he around? Yeah, I think he was around. He was, um, I can't remember, I can't remember what his profession was. Um, but I mean, he was around. Hmm. So he did have a father figure. He did. Every day after class, like, he would hurry home when she was ill, and he would make her a cup of tea, and he would talk with her, and she would count the minutes until he came home because she found, you know, great solace in Mm -hmm. his company. They think that, you know, this endearing manner um, that he learned, you know, his bedside manner of taking care of her. Right. He would adopt that later when he became a family physician. So, and that's why he was so trusted. He mm-hmm. had that really good bedside manner. So, on the outside, he didn't seem like this horrible, menacing doctor. Mm-mm. 
Which I think to some of the staff he was, but not all the staff. He only showed this nasty side to certain people. That's really odd. Yeah. Toward the end of Vera's life, she, of course, was in severe pain. Yeah. As a cancer patient is. And at that time, you know, pumps for pain Mm -hmm. didn't exist. So the doctor would come and, and give her morphine. Oh, yeah. To help ease the pain. And there's no doubt that, you know, he watched as his mother's distress, you know, it, it subsided every time she was mm-hmm. injected with the morphine. She became thinner and frailer, and on June 21st of 1963, she actually finally succumbed mm. to cancer. And it really took a toll on Harold, you mm-hmm. know. It, he had such a tremendous sense of loss with her death. I mean, she was the one who made him feel special above everybody else, yeah. you know. She told him how superior he was to everybody. Two years after she passed, he was finally admitted to Leeds University Medical School. He had had trouble getting in. Oh, because his mediocre high school <laughs> yes. career, I guess. In spite of, you know, how superior he felt to everybody, he had to rewrite his exams because he flunked them the first time. Oh. Yeah. But needless to say, his grades were good enough for him to end up with, you know, getting a degree and to serve his hospital internship. It is actually kind of surprising that a lot of his teachers and students can barely remember Harold. Really? From his years in school. Some who were able to remember him, they they claim, of course, that he looked down on them. And he seemed kind of bemused at how young people behave. Just like young men, Mm -hmm. like a normal, you know, how teenage boys, how they behave. He couldn't understand it. Probably because he maybe never lived that life or acted yeah. like that. Yeah, and one of the students had was quoted as saying, it was as if he tolerated us. If someone told a joke, he would smile patiently, but Fred never wanted to join in. It seems funny because I later heard he'd been a good athlete, so you'd have thought he would have been a, more of a team player. Right. Most of his contemporaries... From his younger years, they they just remember him as a loner. They remember that one place his personality would change would be the football field. Hmm. And I guess he was very aggressive when he played football. That would make sense with him feeling yeah. like he's better than everyone else. Yeah, and his, to his want that. to win yes. was very intense. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he was more sociable in medical school than what his mother had allowed him to be when he was living at home. Mm. So he came out of his shell a Mm -hmm. little in in medical school. And a former teacher had said, I don't think he ever had a girlfriend. In fact, he took his older sister to the school dances. What? They made a strange couple, but then he was a bit strange. A pretentious lad. (laughs) (laughs) That's, uh... That's really strange. Yeah. He uh, finally did find companionship with a girl. Uh, She was three years younger than him. He um, was 19 at the time, so she was... That was his first girlfriend then at 19? Yeah, so she was 16. Oh. And he was 19. That's a big difference between a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old. And her name was Primrose. Primrose. 
her background was very similar to Fred's and how she grew up. Like, she she had a very strict family. Mm, maybe that's why they connected. Possibly. I actually read a little bit on her yesterday evening and about, you know, kind of her past. And her mother was very strict, religious mm. with her. She would choose um, who she could talk to. Mm-hmm. She um, also would, she didn't see the benefit of playdates. And socializing with other kids. So she was a little hermit too. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. raised a hermit basically. Yeah. Her parents were disappointed that she was born a girl. They wanted a boy. And they really, I guess, didn't have too much to do with her. Hmm. Because, you know, they were disappointed. And That's that kind up. of, I think, beat her down in a way that Harold was able to mold her into what he wanted. She was submissive to him. He was the dominant in the relationship. Hmm. So. That makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Primrose's mother restricted her friendships, controlled all her activities, and when she met Fred, she was just delighted. She was just happy to have finally found a boyfriend. When she turned 17, she actually got pregnant. And both... By Fred. Yeah. Okay. And both families kind of forced them, of course, to get married. Oh. And she was five months pregnant when they finally did marry. And by 1974, they had two children. And Fred had joined a medical practice in the Yorkshire town of Todd Morden. And this is in North England. They said... At this time, he kind of underwent a metamorphosis. Like, he underwent this change. He became very outgoing and a respected member of the community. And so weird how he can just switch like that. I yeah. I wonder if something I mean, caused it's like the whole, I mean, we know that there was a... Th- with Ted... Right, there was that incident. Him finding that out right. who his real parentage. Yeah. And being dumped by the, you know, the woman he loved. That, that was what flipped his that switch. That was what flipped his switch. Mm-hmm. But this guy, I don't know. Hmm. That's kind of creepy, yeah. actually. Yeah. And the staff, like, his fellow doctors and their patients, like, they, they saw that side of him. That outgoing, mm-hmm. respectable person. But the staff in the medical office where he worked... They're the ones who saw a different side. Hmm. He was often unnecessarily rude. He made some of them feel stupid, which was a word that he would frequently use to describe anybody he didn't like. He was very confrontational and combative with a lot of people to the point that he would belittle and embarrass them. The staff. Yeah. Wow, I'm surprised he kept anybody on staff acting like a jackass. (laughs) He also had a way of getting things done his way, even with the more experienced doctors within the practice. Really? Yeah. He was able to, I guess... Assert his dominance and get his way most of the time? Get his way in the practice, yeah. Hmm. And at this point, I mean, he he was pretty much a control freak. He had to have control of, I guess, everything. His senior partners in the, the office, they saw him as a godsend. Like, they just thought he was wonderful. One of them by the name of Dr. Michael Grieve. He appreciated Fred's uh, contribution of being able to provide the most up-to-date information. 
Mm. You know, like the newest technologies or whatever. Since he was so recently out of medical school. And his career in Todd Morden uh, came to a sudden halt when he started having blackouts. (laughs) Really? His partners were devastated when he gave them the reason. He told them that he suffered with epilepsy. This was actually a cover-up. It was a lie. He didn't have epilepsy. I was going to say, like, how do you... That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh-huh. Was he really even having blackouts? He was having blackouts, but he was not epileptic. The truth soon came out. Um, the practice receptionist, Marjorie Walker, she came across some entries in a druggist's controlled narcotics ledger. Mm-hmm. The records show that Harold had been prescribing large and frequent amounts of pethidine in the names of several patients. What the hell is pethidine? It's a morphine-like drug that um, they initially thought that it wasn't addictive. It's still debated on if it's addictive. So obviously this was causing his blackouts. Uh-huh. Yeah. He was he was prescribing this medication in other patients' names, but he was taking the medication himself. And he had also written numerous prescriptions for the drug on behalf of the practice itself. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, this this wasn't an unusual thing to do. The drugs are, of course, kept on hand for emergencies and immediate treatments, but the amounts they were being prescribed in were quite excessive. Really? Mm-hmm. So after they found out about Harold's overprescribing a covert investigation by the practice uh, took place and Dr. John Decker uh, discovered that many of the patients that were on that prescription list had not required or had not received that drug. Hmm. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Decker challenged Fred in a staff meeting and uh, one of the partners, Dr. Michael Grieve, he remembers we sat around with Fred sitting on one side and up comes John on the opposite and says, now young Fred, can you explain this? And he puts before him evidence that young Fred had been prescribing pethidine to patients and they'd never received the pethidine. And in fact, the pethidine had found its way into Fred's very own veins. So Harold's way of dealing with that was to provide insight into his true personality. And he realized that his career was on the line. So the first thing he did was beg for a second chance. They denied that, of course. I'm surprised he even admitted. I mean, I guess he couldn't deny it, but being so like thinking he's the shit that he would even be like, oh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and, you know, try to... Please give me another yeah. chance. I think he'd just be like, you're crazy, fuck you. <laughs> exactly. You know. Yeah, so once they denied that, then he became, he was pissed. He was enraged. He stormed out. He apparently threw a medical bag to the ground, and he threatened to resign, so he threw a little temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. Not surprised there. Yeah, but it shocked the partners because they... They weren't used to seeing this violent and uncharacteristic behavior Mm -hmm. coming out of him. He just, he he never showed that side of him to them. Shortly after that meeting, uh, his wife Primrose, she comes storming in. and To the practice? Yeah, to the room where everybody was discussing 
you know, the best way to get rid of oh, Fred. as this is going on, yeah, she so comes in. after, you know, Fred stormed out of the uh-huh. meeting, she comes storming in. And she was really rude. She told the people at the meeting that her husband would never resign. And she told them, you'll have to force him out. I wonder if she didn't even believe the accusations since she was so submissive. Who knows yeah. what he told her. Yeah. You know? She and but she was right. Ultimately, they had to force him out of the practice and into drug rehab in 1975. So he went to rehab. Mm-hmm. He still got a lot. He still has a license. Yeah. At, after this, at this yes. point, after the rehab for um, a brief period, he worked as a medical officer for Hatfield College in Durham, and he did temporary work for the National Coal Board. But a couple years after. He lost that job mm-hmm. and went to rehab. He actually became a general practitioner at the Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde in Greater Manchester. So this is a hospital setting? Mm-hmm. Okay. And how easily and quickly he was accepted. I mean, that just demonstrates his self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Like how confident he was in himself and his ability to convince his peers of how to manipulate yeah of his sincerity mm-hmm. and uh, a doctor from the medical center dr jeffrey moisey he was quoted as saying his approach was that i've had this problem this conviction for abuse of pethidine i've undergone treatment i'm now clean all i can ask you to do is trust me on that issue and to watch me so they were like, okay. Right. Anybody would probably believe that. Yeah. But he probably wasn't watched carefully enough. Well, probably not. If somebody tells you, hey, look, I'm good. Watch me. You're going to think, oh, well, they're okay. I don't need to watch them because they're telling me to watch them. <laughs> He's yeah. using reverse psychology. And again, when he came into this job, he played the role of, you know, this dedicated hardworking, community-minded doctor. He was able to gain his patient's trust, and again, he earned respect from his colleagues. Some of those who worked under him, of course, told of his sarcastic and abusive nature, but of, like always, he was really good at mm-hmm. covering that up. Yeah. Um, well, sounds like he knew who he had to schmooze and be Mm -hmm. fake to and who he knew he could be the real ass to exactly he he was able to cover up that patronizing dr jekyll mr Hyde. yes you know that's right Mm -hmm. that's a good way to put it because he was able to tone down that attitude when he was in front of people he he knew he needed to impress Mm -hmm. there weren't any more blackouts so there weren't really any signs of that he was still you know using using Mm -hmm. and there was no indications of any drug abuse so he continued to work um at this medical center as a general practitioner throughout the 1980s and in 1993 he actually founded his own surgery place on um market street and he he started his own Mm -hmm. wow and became of course a respected member of the community But after a while, there was a local undertaker, and his name was Alan Massey. He kind of started to notice this strange pattern. Shipman's patients seemed to be dying at an unusually high rate. So, the undertaker, like the coroner that would come and get the bodies. Mm -hmm. Okay. He, He noticed that 
a lot of the bodies had um, similarities when he went to pick them up. He said, anybody can die in a chair, but there's no set pattern. And Dr. Shipman's always seemed to be the same or very similar. They could be sat in a chair. They could be laid on a settee. But I would say 90% was always fully closed. There was never anything in the house that I saw that indicated the person had been ill. It just seems the person where they were had died. There was something that just didn't quite fit. So they weren't even dying at his practice. They were dying at home. They were home. dying at home. And he was the last person to have been with them, usually. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. He got worried enough about the situation the undertaker did that mm -hmm. he decided to ask Harold. Oh, and God. He... That's... Hey, are you fucking killing people? What's up, dude? <laughs> don't think that's the approach I would use, but, you I know. don't think you're going to get the truth. Right? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> he confronted Shipman. He, he went to Dr. Shipman's and asked him... And he's, he recalled, I asked him if there was any cause for concern, and he just said, no, there isn't. He showed me his certificate book that he issues death certificates in, the cause of death in, and his remarks were nothing to worry about. You've nothing to worry about, and anybody who wants to inspect this book can do it. That's what Fred, Harold, mm -hmm. Dr. Shipman said. Yeah. He was like, everything's legit. He's so bold. Yeah, he's ballsy. And, you know, the undertaker was reassured at how, you know, easily Dr. Shipman blew this off. And, you know, like it didn't bother him to be questioned. Mm -hmm. And he didn't really think anything more about it. But the undertaker's daughter, Debbie, she's also a funeral director. And she, mm. that explanation that Harold gave wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. And she actually found an ally in another doctor named Susan Booth, who was from a neighboring practice. And she had gone to the funeral directors to examine a body. Um, British law apparently requires a doctor from an unrelated practice to countersign cremation forms oh. that were issued by the original doctor. That actually is smart. Yeah. I mean, especially for a situation like this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And they're... They're paid a fee for this service, and some medics <laughs> call it cash for ash. <laughs> That's a new one. Yeah. Cash for <laughs> ash. So, <clears throat> Debbie had told, you know, Dr. Booth about her suspicions mm -hmm. she had. And Dr. Booth had said, you know, she was concerned about the number of deaths of Dr. Shipman's patients that they'd attended to recently. And she was also puzzled by the way in which the patients were found. They were mostly female, living on their own, found dead, sitting in a chair, fully dressed, not in their nightclothes, lying ill in bed. So it's like a healthy person right. just drops just dead. Just sits down to watch TV and you croak over. Yeah. A lot of them. Mm. That would raise red flags. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Booth kind of started conferring with some of her colleagues about the suspicions, and um, one of them, which was Dr. Linda Reynolds, she contacted a coroner by the name of John Pollard, and he actually called the police. Oh. So this was another, like, covert operation of, you know, investigating mm -hmm. his records. 
<clears throat> so his records were examined and they actually didn't find anything. They gave him a clean bill of health. The police did. Yeah, because the causes of death and the treatments matched up perfectly. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But what the police didn't discover was, you know, Harold had actually gone in and rewritten the patient records after he killed the patient oh. to make them match. Really? Mm-hmm. He re- did he rewrite his treatments or the cause of death or both or maybe? Just I just to make know it that he seem- he went into the patient records and edited them to match. What he was, I guess, putting on the death certificate as a cause of... He he made the records, like, if he said somebody died of a heart attack, well, he would put all this stuff in the records that would make it look like the person had heart issues. So, the quality of that investigation, of course, has been questioned in the years since because the police didn't check for any previous criminal records. They didn't inquire with the General Medical Council... If they had, they would have, you know, found out about his history of drug abuse and forgery. And they might have actually gone a little more thoroughly into their investigation. Yeah. They might have dug a little deeper. So, again, you know. The police dropped the fucking ball. (laughs) Exactly. Basically. Half-assed police work that always seems to happen when there's a serial killer. Right. So, his last victim, Kathleen Grundy. Her sudden death on June 24th, 1998 was a shock to everybody who knew her. She was 81 years old, but she was very active Mm -hmm. for an 81-year-old. She was well-known to the people of Hyde. She was uh, an ex-mayor. She was very wealthy. Oh. And... Did she have family then? Yeah. She had a daughter. She was... You know, a worker at local charities, and, I mean, she did all that up until the day she died. Mm Mm-hmm. Her absence was kind of noticed. She failed to show up at the Age Concern Club, and she usually would help serve meals there to elderly pensioners. She was always noted for her punctuality (laughs) and reliability, and so her friends thought, okay, well, something's Something's wrong wrong. because she just didn't show up. Yeah. So they went to her house to check up on her, and they found her lying on a sofa. She was fully dressed and dead. So they immediately called Dr. Shipman. He had visited the house a few hours earlier. Oh, so he did house calls too? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. And he was the last person to see her alive. He claimed that the reason for his visit had been to take blood samples for her for studies on aging. He pronounced her dead, and the news was conveyed to her daughter, whose name was Angela Woodruff. The doctor told the daughter um, a post-mortem, like an autopsy, it, was, it wasn't necessary because he'd seen her shortly before her death. So, Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, like how it got around all these people having autopsies done, you yeah. know? Which I know that was a different time than it is mm-hmm. now, and it probably wasn't standard yeah you know and especially for an 81 year old exactly you would think yeah natural causes even if they were healthy you'd think you know i mean at that age you could be healthy as a horse and still you know naturally and who knows he probably convinced a lot of people like her Mm -hmm. you know oh i was with her she had been ill and you know there's no reason to do an autopsy so they don't and they trusted him yep After her mother was buried, uh, Angela came home and she had received a phone call from solicitors, which 
in England as lawyers. Oh. And they claimed to have a copy of Miss Grundy's will, her mom. Which was funny because Angela is a solicitor herself. And her firm always handled her mother's affairs. And they actually had a copy of the original document that was filed in 1986. That's weird. Yeah. So she... I'd be like, what the fuck? Exactly. And that's kind of... She was like, what are they talking about? Right. There's another will. Like, How's we, this possible? We, we have, have the, the will. will. So when she saw the will that the other lawyers had, apparently it was badly typed, poorly worded, sloppy. She knew when she looked at it, it was fake. And it left 386,000 pounds to Dr. Shipman. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. Nothing to her. Nothing to the family. All her shit was willed to Dr. Shipman. Like, who? That's so fucking stupid. Exactly. That's not obvious. Someone smart can't even be a good serial killer. (laughs) Jesus. And, you know, Angela had said, you know, my mother was a meticulously tidy person. The thought of her signing a document that was so badly typed, it just didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And she said the signature looked strange. It looked too big. And the concept of mom signing a document, leaving everything to her doctor, was unbelievable. That makes zero sense. Exactly. Zero sense. Fuck. And she's like, it wasn't a case of, look, she hasn't left me anything in her will. You know? Right. <clears throat> it was... This is obviously a fake. Who the fuck's going to leave all their stuff to the doctor when there's... Anyway, initially, she wondered if Dr. Shipman was actually being framed. After she interviewed the supposed witnesses to this will, she reluctantly, eventually, she came to the conclusion that Harold had murdered her mother for profit. I wonder if... Do we know if any of the other people that he murdered had their wheels, fake wheels, done too? No, or was this the first no, one? No, I think this was the first one. I hadn't seen anything else in my research okay. that indicated he'd done that before. Maybe she was the only one that had a lot of money, too. Could be. Because she was wealthy. What a fucking idiot. <laughs> so, once Angela figured this out, she went to the authorities. Her investigation results, um, it ultimately reached a detective superintendent by the name of Bernard Postles. His investigation convinced him of Angela's conclusions, which were accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, the forged will, Bernard would later say, you only have to look at it once, and you start thinking it's something off of a John Bull printing press. You don't have to have 20 years as a detective to know it's a fake. Maybe he thought he was being clever. An old lady, nobody around her. Mm-hmm. Look at it. It's a bit tacky, but everyone knew she was sharp as a tack. Maybe it was his arrogance that made him Probably. think that he could get away with it. I mean, it had to be that, because he's not stupid. I mean... He's a doctor. He has some intelligence, you know. Yeah. So. So now the detective had the oldest motive in the world. Greed. Greed. To justify, you know, bringing up this case against Harold. But in order to get solid proof of Kathleen, of her murder, a post-mortem was required. Mm -hmm. Which in turn required them, of course, to exhume her body. Right. And apparently it's a rare occurrence for any British police force, I guess, to have to exhume a a body. And this is one that 
the greater Manchester police, they, they hadn't really had to do this before. This was a new wow. thing for them. He said, uh, we did not have one officer who had ever taken part in an exhumation. We asked the National Crime Squad for advice. That's wild. Yeah. It had never happened. Yeah. So, by the time that the trial started for Harold, I mean, they, they were very comfortable and familiar with the process of uh. exhumation. Because there were 15 they knew he had killed. Uh, nine of which were buried and six of them were cremated. So, Catherine's was the first grave that they opened. And her body, you know, after those results came in, mm -hmm. they kind of started realizing, okay, we need to look. This is more than just one person thing. Really? Her tissue and her hair samples were sent to different labs, and they, you know, waited for the results. During the same time, the police raided the doctor's home and his office. Mm -hmm. He's still married at this time, right? Uh-huh. Okay. To Primrose. It was a low-key exercise, but it was timed so that Harold had no chance of learning that a body had been exhumed for a post-mortem, and the police had to be certain that no evidence could be destroyed. Or right, tampered with or mm -hmm. gotten rid of. Or concealed yeah. before they searched. So when they arrived, Harold, was he didn't even act surprised that they showed up. He was apparently... As usual, very arrogant. I just want to punch him in the face. And he was people like that. just contempt when they read the search warrant to him. One item that was really important to the police investigations was the typewriter that they found. It was used to type the will. He typed it himself? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. He produced an old brother manual portable telling an improbable tale of how mrs grundy sometimes borrowed it so he was right like, she, okay she borrowed my typewriter from time to time she and left she me three hundred and something thousand pounds <laughs> but she had to borrow a typewriter instead of having her own really believable dumbass exactly and you know it was just a bullshit story and of course it, it worked against him because the forensic scientists confirmed it was the it was the very machine that was used to type the counterfeit will and other fraudulent documents. So when they searched his house, they found medical records, um, some mysterious jewelry that what? didn't belong to Primrose, and a surprise. They said that the home was littered with filthy clothes, old newspapers. Were they hoarders? And they said for a doctor's house, it was very unsanitary. Oh, it shocks me. I know. That's weird. I'm just imagining them on hoarders, like a house <laughs> with like, you know, rat shit and stuff. Like just. I mean, and what I had read about Primrose was that she was obsessed with the idea of being like a perfect housewife and mother. And I, it just surprises me that the house would be so disgusting. That's weird. I mean, they had three or four. Four kids, but still. That's odd. Yeah. The toxicology results came back, and the toxicologist, Julie Evans, she filed her report uh, on the cause of Miss Grundy's death. The morphine level in her body was the cause of death. 
And not only that, her death would have also occurred within three hours of having receiving, of the having dose. received that fatal dose. The detective had said that, you know, Harold's use of the drug was a serious miscalculation. A doctor would surely have known that morphine is one of the few poisons that can remain in body tissue for centuries. Really? I, yeah, I, I didn't, didn't know, know that. I didn't either. And the detective said, I was surprised. I anticipated that I would have had difficulty if he gave them something in the way of a poison that was lost in background substance. Mm -hmm. You know, he gave insulin, which the body produces naturally, as an example. It was an unexpected bonus once I had checked that Kathleen Grundy did not take it herself. How in the hell did he even talk these people or at least her into letting him give it like i mean how did he mislead them be like oh i, I need to give you a flu shot here you go i mean I, he most likely lied you know saying that he needed to give them an injection for, for something whatever. and oh my god that's mm -hmm. horrible and then they just go home and sit down and die well i mean he i guess he was making house calls and they oh okay and just killing them in their homes oh see i was there, thinking maybe did it at the office there was a, a witness during the trial, um, that her, one of her elderly family members, um, Dr. Shipman was trying to convince her that they needed an injection and they refused it. My God. So they could very well have been become victims. a victim had, you know, yeah. That's crazy. He, um, Harold would later claim that the lady, Miss Grundy, uh -huh. That she was a junkie. <laughs> He's joking. No. And even today, like, psychologists speculate on whether or not he was, he wanted to be caught at this point. I mean, that's almost too dumb. I know. I mean, they said otherwise, why would he hand them the typewriter and use a drug that's so easily traced back to him? Either he wanted to be caught or he was really, really that fucking full of himself. Yeah. That he thought, I can do whatever and get away with it. Yeah. It was, had to be one of the two. And that, that was kind of what other people, that was their opinion, was that he saw himself as being, you know, invincible. Like, right. nothing's going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. I can do whatever I You know, I believing want. that I'm a doctor and nobody's ever going to question me. Yeah. And so, it, you know, it could have been one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but pretty soon, the detective, he, he started realizing that, you know, this, this goes way beyond just one person dying. And um, they started to broaden the investigation. Trying to figure out which deaths they wanted to investigate, you know, kind of became a priority. They had to devise a scale based on patterns. And the ones who had not been cremated and had died following a shipment house call, mm -hmm. they, those are the ones that took precedence. Right. The other issues were factored in, but obviously they could only, you know, get tissue samples from the uncremated bodies. Mm -hmm. Different criteria were applied to the next group for the police investigation. All the cremated, they were investigated mainly on the basis of known pre-existing conditions. So they kind of went into their records, I guess, okay. and looked to see if there was anything pre-existing right. that may have led to a death. And they compared it to all the recorded causes of death 
that Harold had put down mm-hmm. on the death certificate, and they correlated that with if he was with them before they died. Gotcha. Whenever he could, Dr. Shipman urged families to cremate the dead, and he al- he would always stress to them that no further investigation was necessary. So he would try to convince these people, first of all, to cremate mm-hmm. them, and you don't need an autopsy. That's uh-huh. not necessary. It may seem strange now that, you know, no relatives found this to be I know, that's what I'm out of the ordinary. Odd. I would be like, mm, that's weird. But, you know, a lot of times people, they trust their doctors. A lot of times, you know, I mean, even in times of a lot of stress. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's growing up with a nurse as a mom. They fucking hate doctors, so. Yes. <laughs> And they, you know what, there are a lot of times, too, that they know more than doctors. Oh, yeah, my mom saved my granny numerous times from... Really? Yeah, she had a blood clot once in her arm, and they took her to the emergency room, and they were like, no, no, that's not what it is, and my mom was like, no, we're going to do an ultrasound, and you're really going to, like, find out. Well, turns out she had, she would have lost her arm that time if my mom hadn't been there. So, yeah, I don't trust any doctor, except Dr. Shantz. I love him, you know, but... He's the best. Anyway... So, yeah, I'm surprised the family didn't be like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. At least raise but, some I mean, kind of red flag. Which I'm a suspicious person anyway. I, know. I mean, you know, you're going to tell me that they don't need an autopsy mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you should Especially cremate Especially if they them. didn't have any existing conditions. Yeah. You know, I would still want to know. the family was aware of. Yeah. You know? I'd be like, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the causes of death that Harold presented. A lot of times, you know, with these patients, they were rational. Even though the families, a lot of times, they were surprised to learn of conditions that their loved ones had never told them they had. Mm -hmm. You know, even if they were to question him, he had computerized medical notes to prove that the patients had seen him for all these symptoms that he, he was saying led to the causes of death. Of course, later on, the police would be able to figure out that he had altered the computer records in order to make everything mm-hmm. match. And he made most of these changes within hours of his patient's death. And a lot of times, immediately after he would kill them, he would run off to his office and change the records. And Do you think his wife didn't notice either? Like, why is all these patients that, my husband dying? That was something that was, I think, brought up in one of the trials, too. I don't think I would be a little suspicious, you know? And people questioned, you know, did she know? Right. And there was some stuff brought up in the trial that apparently she was present in two of the homes when the deaths occurred. Why? She was with him? Yeah. I don't know a lot of detail on that. I just read that that came up during the trial. She was there. Uh Uh-huh. Twice. And that um, she had been accused of taking uh, some rings. Well, I was going to ask about the jewelry. I wonder if she was the one that maybe took it. Well, I think he probably took a lot of it. But she was accused of taking some rings, which she said she didn't. Because, I mean, a woman like that that has been beaten down by her family and then finds this guy who, you know, like gives her attention and stuff, she's probably going to do whatever he wants. Oh, yeah. You know, and... If he asked for help, she probably would have. Mm -hmm. I just find it hard to believe that she wouldn't know something was up. And they said when she was on the stand, she she would always say things like, I don't know. I can't remember. That bitch knew. Definitely. (laughs) I I think so. She knew something. Yeah. 
back to these records he adjusted with with Kathleen Grundy, the last one, he later reinforced his statement that she was a morphine junkie by going in and inventing all this bullshit in her record, and he backdated a lot of these entries he was putting in. Mm. The audacity of this man to suggest that a woman that was that highly respected in the community had been scoring hits from drug dealers. I mean, that was just stupid. That just shows his level of thinking he's the shit. Exactly. And, you know, they said the moment that he made that statement, well, his credibility just went to shit. I mean, obviously. Yeah. When he, you know, when the electronic records first came around... And the computers and stuff. He he was a little bit of a technophobe. He he just was kind of afraid of mm-hmm. it or, you know, didn't understand it. The change. Didn't mm-hmm. like the change. Which is, that is so common. Once he, once Harold finally, you know, agreed to embrace that technology, well, he just thought he was a computer oh. expert. Oh, I'm sure. He's like, oh, I can do what I want now. Which, that's totally consistent with, you know, his need to talk about, it asserts his superiority over everybody. You know, I know more about this than you do. But what the dumbass didn't realize was that his hard drive recorded and time-stamped to the second every phony alteration he made to a patient's records. Oh, wow. There is a trail of everything you do in a patient's chart. And he had no idea. No. <laughs> That's probably a blessing then, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I can remember, like, I worked in the, in the records a lot. And you could go back and look and see who did what. Oh, yeah. At what time, right. what day, what was put in, what was... Yeah. And I he didn't realize that. His trial started in... Um, Preston Crown Court on October the 5th of 1999. Oh, that wasn't that long ago then. Mm -mm. And his defense counsel, they kept trying to have him tried within three separate phases. Cases that had physical evidence, cases that didn't have physical evidence, and Kathleen Grundy's case, all separate. They wanted it separate. They also wanted to have um, any damning evidence that was related to Harold's uh, fraudulent accumulation of morphine and other drugs thrown out. Oh, from his past? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess with the morphine, the accumulation of morphine, that's what he used to kill all these patients. So, not the so the, oh, the doses probably, the mm-hmm. amount that he was getting was like, whoa, something's yeah. wrong here. I mean, they, you can't even buy fucking Sudafed now. I know. And this jackass is hoarding morphine. <laughs> I guess they, they threw that out for the trial. Oh. And the trial proceeded on 16 charges um, in the indictment. In the prosecution, they asserted that Harold had killed the 15 patients because he enjoyed exercising control over life and death. Mm-hmm. And God complex. Exactly. I mean... I mean, That's exactly. some people, I mean, this is essentially the way that his mom died. Mm-hmm. And he's like recreating it. That's weird. Over and over. I can't even decide what I want to eat, let alone if I'm going to kill someone or not. They dismissed any claims that he, you know, was acting compassionately. 
you know, none of his victims that they had investigated, they, they were not suffering a terminal illness. Mm-hmm. There was no reason for any of, you know, the morphine to be administered. And Angela, which was Miss Grundy's daughter, she was the first witness. And she gave her account and she, you know, told of her determination to get to the truth. And that really impressed the jury. The attempts by Harold's defense team, they tried to undermine her and they didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. And after that, they brought up the government pathologist. This person led the court through all the autopsy findings, the morphine toxicity, you know, being the cause of death in pretty much almost all of the Mm -hmm. cases. And after that, there was fingerprint analysis um, from the forged will that showed that Kathleen Grundy never handled that oh, will. Oh, that's pretty damning then. Yep. And her signature, of course, was shown to be a forgery yeah. from a handwriting expert. And a police computer analyst came up and testified about how Harold had altered the medical records to create symptoms that his dead patients never had mm-hmm. and did this and you know most of the times within hours of their death. So the trial progressed on to, you know, other victims, the accounts of their relatives, the pattern of Harold's behavior started to become more clear. Did they ever contact the first the coroner or you know the undertaker that uh like mm-hmm. I wonder if they even like were able to go back and look at that stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anything about that. Mm. But, you know, all of this really showed his lack of compassion, his disregard for the wishes of the relatives, the reluctance to attempt to revive patients. And another fraud came to light during the trial when he would pretend to call emergency services in the presence of relatives and then cancel the call out when the patient was discovered to be dead. What? Telephone records showed that no actual calls were ever made. He was faking it? Yeah. He was pretending to call emergency services and he never would. That's like the most fucked up part. Yeah. Jesus. One of the last things that they brought into evidence was his drug hoarding and his false prescribing to patients who didn't require morphine his over-prescribing to other patients who did require morphine, Mm. and proof of his visits to the homes of the recently deceased. He collected up the unused um, morphine supplies for, quote-unquote, disposal. No. So, yeah. So, he would go to the house, you know, the one with, and gather up the leftover morphine and say, oh, I'll dispose of this, but he really wasn't. He was really keeping it. And apparently throughout this whole trial... He maintained his asshole attitude. He was very hoity. So I can imagine him just sitting there smug looking yeah, like just son of a bitch. Being, ugh. He didn't do himself any favors yeah. by acting like that. The defense, you know, they were trying to... It, his behavior did not help them in, you know, trying to convey... A dedicated healthcare professional. I'm sure it was doing the exact opposite. Yeah. He was, you know, basically showing that everything they said was a lie. Yeah. You know. You know, they they tried to say, oh, you know, he, he put the needs of others above his own. Da, da, da. No. 
You could tell by his attitude. Mm -hmm. He didn't give a shit. His arrogance. And he would constantly change his stories. And he would get caught in lies. He didn't care. So, you know, that, that did not help his chances with the jury at all. Right. The jury was convinced that, you know, from the testimony and the evidence that he was guilty. And they found him guilty on all the charges. 15 counts of murder. Mm-hmm. One of forgery. And um, they this was done on January 31st of 2000. Well, and it last long then. October to January. Yeah. And the um, judge, Justice Forbes, he addressed Harold at the end of the trial. You know, once they found him mm-hmm. guilty. And he said... You have finally been brought to justice by the verdict of this jury. I have no doubt whatsoever that these are true verdicts. The time has now come for me to pass sentence upon you for these wicked, wicked crimes. Each of your victims was your patient. You murdered each and every one of your victims by a calculated and cold-blooded perversion of your medical skills for your own evil and wicked purposes. You took advantage of and grossly abused their trust. You were, after all, each victim's doctor. I have little doubt that each of your victims smiled and thanked you as she submitted to your deadly ministrations. The judge passed 15 life sentences for the murders and a four-year sentence for forgery. Then he broke with tradition that usually involves writing to the home secretary about his recommendations on the length of sentence. Mm -hmm. He said, in the ordinary way, I would not do this in open court, but in your case, I am satisfied justice demands that I make my views known at the conclusion of this trial. My recommendation will be that you spend the remainder of your days in prison. So badass. I'd like to be a judge. I know! Just so I could be like, listen, piece of shit. (laughs) I mean, you probably can't say that, but... You know what I mean. Yeah. I love it. He went to prison in 2000. On Tuesday, January the 13th of 2004, Harold Shipman was discovered at 6 a.m. hanging in his prison cell. Oh! Really? Yeah. God, I get so mad when they kill themselves. Yep. He apparently committed suicide in Wakefield Prison, which was where he had been incarcerated since June of 2003. Originally, he... Was in Durham prison, but had been moved. Mm, What a pussy. I know. Of course, Primrose and his four children, they never accepted that he was guilty. Of course. Primrose was very devoted to her husband, as we know. Mm Mm-hmm. And his transfer to Wakefield made it easier for her to visit him. I think I read that she actually moved to be closer. Really? To the prison so she could visit him. What a dummy. Yeah. The British tabloids expressed joy when they found out he had died. And they encouraged other serial killers to follow his example. Are you serious? (laughs) The newspaper, The Sun, they ran a celebratory front page headline that said, Ship, ship, hooray. (laughs) It's like when everybody was partying when Bundy got fried. Ship, ship, hooray. I like that. Very witty. But of course... Some of the victims' families, of course, they said you know, they felt cheated. Yeah. 
They felt that his suicide meant they would never have the satisfaction of him actually confessing to mm. his crimes. He would have never done it anyway, though. No. Someone like that. He would have never. He, he never would admit. He mm-hmm. always maintained that he was innocent. And they knew they would never get answers as to why he did what he did. Yeah. His death, his suicide opened an inquiry as to how he was able to hang himself in his cell, even though suicide attempts aren't particularly unusual for somebody who's facing life in prison. I mean, there was no evidence while he was at Wakefield that he was on suicide watch. Now, when he was at Durham, he Mm -hmm. had been on suicide watch before his transfer. Uh, A spokeswoman from Wakefield had told the BBC News that Harold had used bed sheets to hang himself from the window bars of his cell. And she had said he wasn't, you know, he hadn't been showing any signs whatsoever mm-hmm. of pre-suicidal behavior at all. Hmm. So they never really did establish a motive as to why he mm-hmm. committed suicide. I guess, you know, he didn't leave a note or anything like that. Of course he did. Reportedly, he had told his probation officer that he was considering suicide so that his widow could receive a National Health Service pension and a lump sum even though he had been stripped of his pension himself. So he couldn't get his pension, but if he were to die before the age of 60, she would get it. When he went to jail, like, everything turned to shit for Primrose. I'm sure. Um, She she had to sell the house to pay for, you know, legal fees. She she didn't have a job, and obviously now she couldn't get one yeah. because her reputation preceded her. She her name was Mud, so <laughs> she couldn't work. She you know had to sell her house. She was destitute basically, had no money. She was you know staying with family members a week at a time. She, it, it was just miserable, and I think that was I, I read that you know that was probably the one good thing he did. For I was say, so he finally actually put someone first. Yeah, the one good thing he ever did for her was to you know kill himself so she could get his pension. Oh my God! So when he died, she received the full pension, and had he been over the age of sixty when he died, yeah, she wouldn't have gotten it. And I actually read that. All the children have changed their names since then. Oh, so at least they believe it now? I don't think so. I oh. just think that... They just don't want to be associated with it. They know the negative that, stigma. Yeah. You know, same way with her. Like, she couldn't get a job. Yeah. Who's going to hire the children of a serial killer that's killed up over 200 people? How did they people? end up finding out about all these other people? They don't really know when he started doing this. Mm-hmm. But I think looking back... You know, the more they dug into these records, I mean, they don't know for certain, but I think they most likely found a pattern. Yeah. With these, you know, patients before the 15 that he was right. accused they of. Right, they at least established, okay, he had this many patients that died under his care. And, and you he know, was probably the, with them yeah. within a certain amount of time. And, you know, all the ones that were cremated, we'll, we'll never know oh, for it makes sure. makes me so mad that he... When people don't, like, tell, like, you know. Yeah. Just because I like to know. know I'm like, I want to know. Mm-hmm. The families deserve, like, what do you get out of taking that to your grave? It's control. It goes back to that, you That's know. That's true. He, does, he wants to be in control. Yeah. Like Todd Colehep. Oh, you God, know? yeah. We like need to talk all, about him I know. at some we point, need to man. Do He's crazy. Some, I know. 
there was an FBI profiler by the name of John Douglas. He had said, you know, serial killers are usually obsessed with manipulation and control, Mm -hmm. killing themselves while in police custody or committing suicide by cop can be a final act of control. Yeah. You know, and that was kind of with um, Israel Keys. I think Mm, that was, it was all about control with him and him killing himself because he did not want to be in jail. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, he made that adamant. He wanted his death sentence carried out within yeah. the year. And and he was going to have the control. Yep. No matter what. Apparently, while Harold was in prison, he had been emotional and close to tears when he refused to take part in these courses that would have encouraged him to confess his guilt. And he refused to take part, so they pulled all of his privileges from him. Really? Yeah, and he got really upset. They actually took away, you know, him being able to telephone Primrose. They also reported that um, he was very obnoxious and arrogant to the prison staff while he was there. Imagine that. I know. And just before Christmas of that year, his enhanced status was reduced to basic, I guess because he was such an asshole. And they would deprived- be a pretty big dick. I, I mean, you know, I wonder if somebody slipped him a few extra bed sheets. <laughs> you know, in an effort to. There you go. I, I want to say that Primrose, if I remember reading, she thought that you know, oh, he was murdered oh. in prison. He he didn't kill. You know, he was whatever. Yeah. They took away his television set. He had to wear a regular prison uniform. He wasn't allowed to wear his own clothes. His privileges had been given back to him about a week before he killed himself. Mm. Primrose consistently believed, of course, that he was innocent. Yeah. But. They think that maybe she might have started to suspect his guilt. Mm-hmm. It was reported, I think it was from a cellmate of Harold's. Yeah, Tony Fleming. He was a cellmate mm-hmm. of um, Harold's. He said that Primrose had recently written to Harold and said in the letter, like, she wanted him to tell me everything, no matter what. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe she finally saw the light. Maybe. The closest that anyone ever came to really understanding what motivated Harold to actually kill people was a doctor by the name of Richard Babcock. (laughs) I would change my name. That is such an unfortunate name. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's really bad. (laughs) He was a psychiatrist at the Rampton Special Hospital. I guess he spoke at length with Harold. And he told um, the newspaper, The Telegraph, that he believed that Shipman's choice of career might have been influenced by his developing tendencies towards necrophilia. What? And perhaps that was originally triggered by the death of his mother from cancer when he was 17. But we don't know that he abused any of the corpses like that, Mm -mm. right? Yeah, and that was the thing I thought was weird. I'm like, what does he mean? Because Uh, as far as we know... He didn't take part in right. necrophilia. I mean, I, I, there were some, I want to say, I didn't know at first that Ted Bundy oh, yeah. was a necrophiliac. Who we're going to talk about next week. He was the worst of the worst oh, for a necrophile. So, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, the fact that Ted would go back mm-hmm. to the bodies. BTK did that too. Yes. He's freakazoid too. So, ne- oh, ugh. Anyway, I don't know how I feel about, you know, Dr. Badcock's assessment. 
Well, Dr. Badcock, if you're listening, you got bad info. I don't believe that. <laughs> he said, he also said, you know, having complete control over life and death can give a sense of power and omnipotent vulnerability in itself. But in January of 2001, there was a man by the name of Chris Gregg. He was a West Yorkshire detective. And he was selected to lead an investigation into 22 deaths from West Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. And after that, um, a report into Harold's activities was submitted in July of 2002. And... It had concluded he had killed at least 215 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. And that was way back, you know, when he right, first started when practicing. when he first started. In Todd Morden. And when he was getting all the extra yeah, drugs. When, yeah. A Dame, Dame Janet Smith um, was the judge who submitted these reports. And she admitted that a lot more suspicious deaths couldn't be definitively tied to him Mm -hmm. and you know but it is possible there's even more than that and most of his victims were actually elderly women who were in good health so weird why would he target elderly women did i think it had something to do with his mom dying or what a lot of people speculate that it, it something when he watched his mom slowly die I mean, I watched my granny slowly die of pancreatic cancer and get morphine, but I don't want to go out here and fucking kill everybody yeah. her age. Like, this I don't, just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I don't know whatever set him onto that path. I mean, he, he, he wasn't one who... He was close with his mom. Yeah. You know? I mean, he had a great relationship right. with his mom. Uh, he wasn't abused. He, he yeah. wasn't one of those serial killers who had a really shitty upbringing. Right. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He thought he was better than everybody because I mean, his obviously mom told that, him he yeah, was. Yeah, that gave him some sort of a something that started, yeah. you know, fucking with his mind. But kind of makes me glad now that I'm like hard as fuck on Braylon. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people are like, you are so hard on him. No, fuck that. I'm not going to have a serial killer, son. <laughs> Take him to Myrtle Beach and bring him home with a black eye because he's got his ass kicked wrestling. <laughs> That's good for him. It helps. Yeah. <laughs> helps your character. Dame Janet Smith uh, filed a sixth and final report in January of 2005. And she believed that Harold had killed three patients and had serious suspicions about four other deaths, mm-hmm. including that of a four-year-old girl during the early stage of his medical career at Pontefract General Hospital. So weird to one girl, one girl in the mix, though. You know, like I don't know. That's odd. Very odd. Yeah. Which a lot of this stuff that he's done, it it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Janet Smith concluded that the probable number of Harold's victims between 1971 and 1998 was about 250. In total, 459 people died while under his care. But they don't really know how many of those were actually his victims and how many actually, you know, died. I'm sure some of them legitimately died. Yeah. Like, of other reasons. Right. But no one should have that many deaths. Even in 30 years. I mean, I'm not good at math, but that's a lot per year. Like, that would be, what, 
10 a year? One, one a month? Something? Over 30 years? 40 I mean, years? I don't know. Somebody do the math and let us know because <laughs> I'm not good at math. But I know that's a shit ton. And especially for someone who's just a general practitioner, not someone that is a hospice doctor. Right. Or you're, you're you know, not a surgeon. Right. You're, you're not, not Dr. You know, Death, Dr. Some trauma sur Yeah. You, you know? You're not working with patients who are coming in with traumatic injuries or chronically ill patients mm -hmm. or, you know, you're not a, an oncologist who, you know, you yeah. who have who has cancer patients that would die on the regular... That's no, insane. you're a general practitioner. 450 something. I couldn't even imagine if my GP had lost over 450 patients. Uh, that, next time I need to find a doctor, that's what I'm going to ask. <laughs> Can you please tell me how many patients have died under your care? It's just crazy. You know, the, in, the inquiry into him, into Harold, it did... Um, recommend changes to the structure of the General Medical Council itself. Mm -hmm. The General Medical Council actually ended up charging six doctors who signed cremation forms for Harold's victims, and they were charged with misconduct, claiming they should have noticed the pattern between Harold's home visits and his patient's deaths. I mean, that's true. All those doctors were found not guilty. Really? Yeah. And Primrose uh, was called to give evidence about two of the deaths during the inquiry. Was that the two that she was mm -hmm. there present for? Yep. And throughout, she maintained her husband's innocence uh, before and after the prosecution. In um, October of 2005, there was a similar hearing that was held against two doctors who worked at Tamaside General Hospital in 1994, mm -hmm. who failed to notice that Harold had deliberately administered a grossly excessive dose of morphine. Hmm. So it's like they witnessed this. And they didn't do anything. And they didn't do anything. I wonder if they were, I mean, not that it's an excuse, but I wonder if they were so, like, scared of him. Like, you know, and to come out possible. and say anything. The way he was able right. to, you know, manipulate and get his mm -hmm. way with even senior yeah. doctors in the practice. That's still not an I mean, excuse. I mean, they should have been right. something, but Jesus. In 2005, it started coming to light that Harold may have stolen jewelry from his victims, like we talked about mm -hmm. earlier. Over $10,000 worth of jewelry was found in his garage in 1998. What? Yeah. In March of 2005, Primrose, like, she was pushing for the jewelry to be returned to her. And police actually wrote to the families of all of the victims and asked them to identify any yeah. of the jewelry. Anything that hadn't been identified was handed over to the Assets Recovery Agency. In August of 2005... Uh, the investigation ended, and 66 pieces were given back to Primrose. And 33 pieces, which she actually confirmed weren't hers, were auctioned off. And then she has to know her husband was a killer. Exactly. God, I swear, why are women so fucking dumb sometimes? It makes me so angry. <laughs> or look dumb, in denial. It has to be because, I mean, she, battered woman syndrome or something, yeah. the way she was raised. And just, I mean, 
I wonder if that was like his, like, you know, little token of his memento. Like his trophies? Yeah. If he took some jewelry as Possibly. I mean, considering he had that much. I know. My God. Because you know he didn't do it for money. I mean, he's a doctor. So he wasn't like. You know, hawking it and selling it, you yeah. know. So he was they're, keeping it in his garage yeah, for a reason. Like hiding it for. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if there's more out there too that they didn't find, or other mementos that he kept, other trophies, something possible. Especially given the state of the nastiness of their right. The the thirty three pieces that she said you know weren't hers, they actually auctioned those off, and the proceeds of that went to the Tamaside Victim Support. The only piece of jewelry that was actually returned to a murder mm-hmm. patient's family was a platinum diamond ring that the family was able to provide a photograph and proof of ownership. Oh, wow. But a memorial garden to all of Harold's victims called the Garden of Tranquility was opened in Hyde Park on the 30th of July of 2005. With, did, it, did that what they used the money for to open that when they auctioned it? Or was that somebody different that did the... It, 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 the proceeds went to a different cause. Oh, it went okay. to the um, victim support. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. At least went to that. Yeah. That is the story of... That's Dr. a fucked up one. Yeah, he's... He's different than I mean, a lot. That, that's a lot of victims. And zero remorse. Oh, yeah. Didn't mm. care. I was an arrogant prick the whole time. Thought he was better than everybody. Well, I'd hate to mom blame, but I'm going to put a little of blame on his mom God, for yeah. treating him like that. Putting him on, on such a pedestal. a pedestal. Yeah. I wish that he wouldn't have killed himself so they could have studied him a little longer and tried to, you know, figure out more about him because he's kind of an anomaly. Yeah. You know, compared I, to most. You know, I, kinda, I doubt he would have ever talked. Probably not. Yeah. Considering all those years, he never admitted to anything. Mm-hmm. I don't... I, don't think I just can't believe that the wife still doesn't think that he did it after finding all the jewelry. I know. Maybe, maybe she I mean, if you found a box of jewelry now, but... that Jonathan had hid in the garage or, you know, wouldn't you be <laughs> like, uh, listen, buddy. This has serial killer vibes. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we suspect everybody. I mean, I was driving down 64 the other day, and the guy had a garbage can strapped in the back of his truck, and I was like, I bet there's a body in that. <laughs> That's where my first thought went, but, you know, we're pretty suspicious people. But. Well, it's like that meme I posted, you know, every time you see a garbage bag on the side of the highway, yes. you automatically think, oh, there's a, that, there's, there, but there's a body in there. Body pieces in that. <laughs> Always. So, you want to hear who we're talking about next week? Yeah. Ed Kemper, the co-ed killer. Oh, Ed Kemper. I know, I'm really excited about it. Oh, Ed. So, have you watched Mindhunter yet? Because they talk I a haven't. lot about him on there. I haven't. Um, it, was, it was pretty good. I binge-watched it in like two days when my leg blew open and I couldn't yeah. really do anything. So, um, yeah, so that's who we're going to talk about next week. Exciting. So. We're not really, I guess, not really drinking tonight. I had a, I had a long meeting... This evening at work that ran over, so. And my mom, the RN, wound care nurse, says, You know, you'll heal better if you don't drink, Lena. <laughs> I'm like, I may heal better, but I might kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> but I had a little bit while we were Myrtle Beach for Braylon's tournament, so. Ah, well, there you yeah, A little bit my, ain't gonna just hurt. Just don't tell you. my mom that. <laughs> a little bit won't hurt. That's right. So. Shoot. 
Yeah, well, I'm sorry that it took us so long, guys, to get back up and running, but, you know. We're back. Beauty is, beauty is pain sometimes. So. Uh, that, yeah, this is true. <laughs> we, we had that conversation, the things we go through. I know. Vanity is real over here. Uh, so, yeah, you know, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Twitter yeah, Apple, whatever. Yeah. Drop us a message. And, you know, if you haven't already on Apple, leave us a review. Yeah, we like to hear what people have feedback. I've had a couple messages from people when we posted on um, the Facebook page about some events that they would like to hear about. So Ooh, fun. Uh, I'll be doing some research for those probably coming up after I do Mr. Kemper, yes. Mr. Ed. So um, I've had some, um, uh, actually a girl on Reddit tell me about some, they're, they, they're not serial killers, um, but they're like, a couple of them were unsolved murders mm-hmm. and things like that that she would like to hear about. And I, I like actually, that kind of stuff, too. I do, so. too. And I've, I, I kind of want to get into some of that stuff, mm-hmm. too. We're also paranormal freaks, too. Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've actually talked about starting a podcast on that, too. Yeah. Having um, two podcasts going. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, I, I actually have downloaded a book about one of these cases. and Oh, okay. I just started it. And I haven't gotten very far. I'm the worst at starting a book and putting it I down. Know. And I do this too. I've got like I, I was like, aren't you six, reading like five right now? Five, five or six yeah. that I start them, I put them down, I forget about them. Start another one, and, I, and and then I'll see another book, and I'm like, ooh, I need that one, and I'll download it onto my Kindle, and I'll start that one, and I'll just only get so. It's a vicious cycle. <laughs> it's the worst. But yeah, so there are you know some stuff we're we're looking into and exciting can't wait to share it with you guys no i'm looking forward to next week me too so if you don't know anything about kemper don't research it just wait and let me tell you about him because <laughs> you're gonna be like what the fuck yeah he i i know a little bit about him from some stuff God. i've watched but uh it's gonna it's gonna be a good one uh it you know as long as you like really fucked up shit and you don't care about <laughs> the you know details and you know like how a lot of people said that the night stalker on netflix like they couldn't watch it because of all the details i'm sitting over there just like tell me more exactly i didn't know you're not telling me enough i know so yeah so be prepared for next week y'all great well thanks for tuning in and listening to us yeah we will see you guys next week see you next week y'all bye bye